Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. U.S. debt talks continue as hopes rise that the White House and lawmakers will make a deal that avoids a first-ever default. Italy averts a debt downgrade. The G7 tightens Russia's sanctions and moves to counter China's economic coercion. We're going to discuss what that means for trade. The U.S. Air Force says it will pick the next-generation air dominance platform prime next year. Boeing unveils a new Cascade climate impact modeling tool to determine the environmental impact of commercial aviation and commercial aviation technologies. Rolls-Royce tests its ultrafan high-efficiency engine, joining an increasingly crowded field. Questions about VistaJet's future as the Financial Times reports the company's losses and debt. The Biden administration signals it will allow F-16 operators to send their jets to Ukraine as Vladimir Zelensky visits Saudi Arabia and the G7 seeking more aid. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, in Washington, D.C. Everybody, uh, thanks very much. Hope you're having a great weekend and always a pleasure having you on the program. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us, as always, Vago. Happy weekend, Vago. Great to be on. Uh, indeed, guys. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off, right? I mean, everybody's been talking about the debt. Um, markets are responding. I think lawmakers uh, and the White House uh, Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy, the California Republican and the president have both said that they want to try to avert a debt default. Obviously, the president is cutting short uh, his meeting. He won't be going to Sydney uh, for the G7 meeting or Papua New Guinea for a meeting with uh, Pacific Island uh, leaders. Walk us through sort of how, you know, how the group performed on the market and what the market sentiment is about where we're going uh, on a debt default or not. Yeah, I mean, a bullish place to start, I think, is uh, on the U.S. You know, credit default swap spreads, and they they came down this week. You know, they ended last week at, at seventy six at seventy six basis points uh, to buy uh, protection, and went down to fifty eight. Right, so that kind of was a steady just downward trend all week. And I think so. The markets, you know, you know, feeling feeling better. I mean, that would translate to less than a percent of a chance of. of of a default, not that it was that high before, it was a little over a percent. Uh, the S&P for the week uh, was up uh, about one and a half percent, a little over one and a half percent. And then if you kind of look across the group, um, you know, the, uh, the of the large caps, the Boeing was up a little over 2%, Northrop about a percent, Lockheed about a percent, Raytheon was roughly flat, General Dynamics was roughly flat. Uh, really, the, the, the champ of the week in our coverage was Triumph Group. Um, at Aero Supplier, uh, they reported earnings this week, and the stock was up uh, 18% on the week. Uh, Spirit Aero Systems was up uh, about eight and a half. Uh, Transdime uh, about three and a half. Tyco about seven. Uh, so you're seeing, you know, the, the Aero Suppliers actually do do quite well, uh, and uh, that was led by Triumph Group. Uh, then it's just kind of interesting if you look year to date. This is something I was just taking a peek at before um, our conversation today. Uh, and, and you look at you know where you know the 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 market has been the S and P year to date it's up about nine percent, uh, and then across you know across the coverage uh, year to date uh, the defense names haven't done so well uh, you know Northrop's down almost nineteen percent GD fifteen percent Lockheed seven percent 
Boeing's up almost eight, but still underperforming the market. Uh, you know, Raytheon kind of splits the difference. It's down 4%. And then some of the big winners on the year are Embraer's up uh, almost 32%. Bombardier's up 15%. Hexel's up almost 23%. Again, you're seeing this trend where you've got commercial suppliers or uh, maybe some of the more you know, smaller commercial names doing, doing well. And then the absolute outstanding uh, name on our coverage is Palantir. And I think this has been this big focus on AI. Palantir year to date is up almost uh, 83%, uh, which is a giant move for them. Uh, but there's been a big focus on you know, kind of what they do, artificial intelligence and so on and so forth. And they're a big player on that. WTI was roughly flat on the week, ending the week around 72. Brent, same thing, around 76. The VIX trended down just a smidge, uh, about 16 and a half. Uh, but we're seeing the 10-year um, yield uh, trend up a bit. Uh, so this week, we're uh, about 3.8%. And it looks like it's kind of pushing back up to that that, that 4% level. Uh, so I think the market's settling in on, you know what, uh, maybe the Fed isn't going to raise again, but it might not start cutting immediately soon. So we'll see where it all plays out. Let me, uh, you, you know, um, so the good news is no debt default, but at the end of the day, whatever debt deal we strike could have potentially negative uh, implications, right? I mean, we averted a debt default the last time and we ended up with the Budget Control Act. Um, is there any sense uh, on either your part or market's part that, you know, the medicine, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, great, we're not going over the cliff, but you know, you could end up with a gunshot wound, right? It's better than going over the cliff, I guess, depending on where the bullet hits. So, I mean, is there any sense that the debt deal itself could, you know, might be problematic in some way, especially when it comes to defense spending? Well, I think that's why you're seeing, you know, you know, the defense stocks uh, underperform um, like they have. Is there some some worry about that? But you have to like, kind of, what do you call it, circle the square or whatever with uh, the orders we've seen. You know, I'm certain we'll talk about it at some point on the podcast you know, these like massive orders for munitions and support for F-35 and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, so you, it, there's a, you know, there's a cognitive dissonance right now going on between, there is support uh, on the Hill, it seems, by both parties. Uh, and, and, and for the most case, you know, by both parties, most members for uh, strong defense spending. But, you know, how do you circle that up with uh, the whole thing going on with the, the, the debt ceiling and so on and so forth? So we'll see. Um, my sense is we're not going to see cuts to defense but i mean ultimately we won't know until we know uh that's that's right we won't know what wow that was like philosophical uh that was like almost yogi bearer like um uh sash uh give us your sense uh, sort of on the week uh and uh performance of uh, uh the group in on european uh markets uh and again how the sort of debt drama is being regarded uh there right because there are some folks on that side of the atlantic that have their money uh, obviously, uh, in uh, U.S. Uh, equities uh, in the U.S. market systems as well. Yeah, I mean, look, equity markets, particularly, you know, our sector just is shrugging it off now. Um, I mean, I've, I've said long, long, there's a feeling, whether misguided or not, on the side of the Atlantic, that you just couldn't be so stupid. Um, and that this is not the act of, you know, the, the, the whole issue of, of, a, of a default is not something that a, uh, a nation that, you know, aspires to continue to lead the world, and you do that through the dollar, would, would go anywhere near. Um, that may be a very, very naive view, but um, that certainly certainly had equity markets behaving at the moment. We looked at how last week, um, uh, stocks overall were up a percent and a half, but really led by civil. I mean, the, the two outstanding performers were Rolls-Royce and Airbus. Airbus, um, I think there's just some sort of positive views at the moment about the degree to which 
that the wide body market is uh, recovering. Airbus's wide body business has definitely been lagging in the last six, nine months or so. But, you know, you're looking at orders or potential orders from uh, Philippine Airlines is, is the one that seems to be looking at a bunch of uh, A350s at the moment. Um, and uh, so that, that that's given the stock, which is really flatlined over the last uh, couple of months. So that, that gives, you know, took the stock to the top end of its trading range. And then Rolls-Royce. Um, and Rolls-Royce, I think, was very much an issue of the, the company doing the, the first test run of the uh, currently big ultra-fan uh, next-generation uh, aero engine. And I think the fact that Rolls-Royce has, has started to started to get back to, to the day job, which is actually designing, building, selling, maintaining aero engines, uh, rather than sort of um, firefighting, which is what they've done in the last five years or so it was you know very well taken by investors richard i want to uh bring you in um the g7 meeting uh was uh, a watershed vladimir Zelensky making uh a visit you know as we heard from patrick cronin on on uh, friday's show really does show um the clout and sort of the power of the g7 uh still even though you know maybe a decade ago folks were talking about the g20 uh, supplanting the G7, obviously the G7 being the democracies, uh, leading uh, economic, uh, leading economies that are also democracies. Uh, it's held firm on on Russia. It's actually tightened uh, sanctions. It's grappling and uh, with the issue of Chinese economic coercion. Uh, and, you know, we we still have too many loopholes on on Russia. Closing any of them is great. I mean, the problem is we've sort of, you know, we we want to give the appearance we're doing something. We sort of want to do something, but we don't want to hurt anybody doing it, certainly on our side, uh, not to cause economic problems. And then and then that remains a challenge uh, on the part of China at, as well, right? We we want to figure out how we continue doing business with China without really impacting trade at all. And increasingly, we're not talking about decoupling, we're talking about de-risking, right? Which is a word that you're even hearing from, from folks in the White House, seeing that they may have gone a little bit too far from their, their standpoint. What are sort of the key takeaways from the G7 and what it means economically going forward? And and Ron and Sash would love to have your guys' take on this uh, as well. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, it was really interesting. I think there are two takeaways from the G7 meeting and, of course, uh, events surrounding it. One is efforts to increase the supply uh, and overall bandwidth of uh, capacity for Ukrainian military supplies because, you know, one headline put it this week, Ukraine's war machine is kind of running on fumes here. And globally, we're running out of stuff in inventory and ability to produce. So getting countries like Japan and South Korea uh, on board with supplying munitions, that's absolutely terrific. Um, you know, basically showing that there is this alliance of democracies that will do the job. You know, it's sort of a, a mini modernized version of World War II, you know, arsenal of democracies, I suppose. Uh, and I'm closely related to that, of course, the agreement to provide training or allow training and support of the F-16s provided by other countries, not the U.S., that inevitably is going to lead to U.S. F-16s. We all know how this goes. And uh, that's certainly a very welcome development because, well, the F-16 is just an incredibly capable tool that'll help them an awful lot, especially as supplies of air defense munitions continue to run very low and therefore air superiority becomes an issue again. Uh, so I, I think it's a well-timed announcement. Uh, the other issue is what you might call cracks in the global south narrative there's this sort of uh you know the global south they don't see it the way the western democracies do there's you know reasons for them standing up against the u.s that's gradually revealing to be not the case of any kind of unified principled front but rather a 
collection of folks doing things for reasons of their own and some very bad reasons that can easily be countered. And the classic example being, gee, China suddenly realizing it is not a good idea to not have a renewed grain deal because, of course, they're a big importer of food. <laughs> or, you know, the South Africa story, it's very clear there's a really good chance that they are, in fact, providing Russia with weapons and that our ambassador has a point and all of their principled stance amounts for exactly nothing other than lies. There's a good chance of that. So, and then of course, you've got the India case, you know, where you've got a principled stance based upon the fact that they've made incredibly incompetent military procurement decisions that have left them very vulnerable to right. Russia, not giving them the sort of spares and support that they've become accustomed to. And gee, that's not really a reason to do the wrong thing. So I think there are sort of cracks in that narrative uh, about the global South being principled, and that'll help facilitate a crackdown on embargo uh, you know, uh, issues, particularly say for commercial jetliners, which have been as leaky as it gets. Uh, that clearly is the first place to go because the Russian jetliner fleet is doing a far better job than anyone would have thought. And that's only because of course, of illicit third party imports of, uh, of parts. Um, I, I just want to uh, point out, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, two, two points, right? No one ever said I want less air power. Uh, so the F-16 decision is a, is a huge one, even if we're not the ones shipping them there. Uh, it's a capability. And it's great that the United Kingdom, again, has stood up and is doing pilot training uh, for, for those guys, which I think can actually be done a lot more quickly, uh, even, even if um, the training of a modern aviator is very different than it was in World War II, right? I mean, you just had to worry about gunnery and, and not how to operate the read, radar and the combat system. And I also think India's position is interesting because it says like, well, I don't want to be hostage to anybody else, but I'm willing to be hostage of the Russians. Exactly right. Um, um, a quick word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Ron and Sasha want to bring you in and just sort of weigh in on the global sort of economic dynamic uh, as you guys see it uh, in the wake of the G7, because uh, again, we, we, we want to sort of impose sanctions, but we don't really want to change anything. And our adversaries sort of know that, right? And, and take advantage of it. Uh, go ahead, Ron. I mean, you guys have had some interesting calls uh, with leading sort of thinkers on, right, sanctions, China, and, and how to think about all of this. You know, sort of give, give us your sense and Sash, welcome yours. I, I take your point about sanctions. I can't help feeling it's quite a good idea to fight a war on one front at a time, if you can possibly manage it. Um, sanctions against Russia, there's a clear... Um, immediate requirement uh, for those as a consequence of the war of Ukraine. Sanctions against China is a much longer burn thing, but it seems to me that um, it's going to be very hard to get hold of the G7 in favour of sanctions against China, except on a very, very limited number of uh, cases, based on the degree to which China is still a massive market, in particular for Germany, but you know, uh, also uh, the US in terms of uh, aerospace and uh, Japan in terms of uh, automotive and electronics. So I think um, I think the reason why the G7 is taking uh, so long um, to think, think about the sanctions is just that the economic in, uh, dependency on China is way bigger than it is for Russia. I think that as and when the, um, in the Ukrainian war comes to a fairly satisfactory conclusion, then we might well see a ramping up of the, uh, of, of the pressure on, uh, on China after that. But I, would, I don't think all of the G7 would use the word adversary 
uh, with regard to, to China, whether that's right or wrong. Uh, you guys have uh, always have some pretty thoughtful events with some leading thinkers who join uh, you guys on investor calls to kind of walk through, you know, walk through your clients on on what all of this means. I mean, what are some of the takeaways, right? I mean, at the end of the day, Wall Street and the investment community wants to keep making money. L- leaders don't want to hit their businesses. Therefore, the loopholes are big enough to drive trucks through. Uh, while at the same time, the countries on the other side are doing a whole bunch of other things that are actually going to make our lives hard and improve their lives, right? They're sort of playing a little bit harder ball than we are. We want to give the appearance a hard ball. Anyway, walk us through like how this is changing the dynamic and whether or not like decoupling or de-risking, right? How does the market separate those two? Because I think from Beijing's standpoint, it's like, hey, you guys want to bring game on? Okay, game on. We'll, We'll sort of try to figure that out. Yeah, I think from a market perspective, it's been incremental, meaning uh, if you go, and I think COVID was a kind of a, a turning point, uh, honestly, pre-COVID, uh, trying to you know explain to companies or uh, not even that, uh, companies having a sense that um, maybe doing business in China, you were taking on some risks that um, you didn't understand or so on and so forth. I don't think that was as fully appreciated as it is now. And now that's not to say that companies don't want to do business in China. I mean, China's still a big market and so on and so forth. But my sense is that there's a broader recognition that if you're going to do business in China, that there's there's more risk associated with it around intellectual property and, and some other things. And we really have seen uh, part of it spurred by you know industrial policy in the US supporting uh, you know onshoring or reshoring to um, you know, other 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 places you can do business that are, you know, uh, potentially low cost, right? I mean, ultimately, that was part of the reason to go into China. Um, so I, I do think there's a, a, a broader sensitivity to it and awareness, maybe that's a better word, a, better, a broader awareness of the risks that China brings. But that's not to say that, you know, there's this wholesale thing like, oh, we're going to decouple and so on and so forth. So it's, um, you know, I think it's 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 a, it's a subtlety. Uh, but it's uh, there definitely is a, a, a broader awareness of that. And you know, you're seeing it with things with the Chips Act and so on and so forth that, OK, I mean, there, there, there are probably areas. And, and, and I really do think it was COVID that brought that in focus because of the concerns around things people didn't even think about, masks and pharmaceuticals and so on and so forth. So, um, so, I, so I think the, the street is, you know, becoming aware of it. Um, and I think some behaviors are changing, but it's an incremental thing. It is, it is certainly interesting to watch. I mean, and I don't want to say, right, that the, the Chinese don't care what the impact are on their economy because they do, and their economy is not doing as well uh, as, um, I, as I think they want it to and, and what it means uh, for the rest of the market uh, as, a, as a consequence. Richard, do you want to weigh in on that in terms of sort of how the Chinese market is doing and the latest information that we're getting and what it means for, you know, certainly the commercial aviation side of the business, given uh, how important a driver China is? You know, it's not looking good. Um, obviously, air travel demand is a function of both of GDP growth and the multiplier between that growth and you know, RPK demand, revenue passenger kilometer demand. And that multiplier, which had been two to one for many years, decades, actually, was broken before the pandemic. It doesn't look like, given the shift away from a market economy, that it's going to recover anytime soon. Couple that with slower GDP growth. And there's a real feeling that this huge growth driver, you know, from from 2% of jetliner demand worldwide in in the year 2000 
to um, basically 23% in 2018, that's not coming back anytime soon. If they're 10% or 12%, I'll be happy. Uh, so the big question we get a lot, I'm sure all of us do, is uh, it, can India replace China as the next big growth story? And maybe in terms of uh, in terms of growth rates, but they're starting from a much lower base. And of course, there are so many more problems to associate with infrastructure and whatever else. So it's not looking great is the answer. Uh, Ron and, and Sash, do you guys want to weigh in on that or do we move on to the cascade uh, tool? I mean, just a quick a quick comment on China. Um... And I think this is an important thing, and you know, it's a little bit out of out of sort of my expertise area. But if you look at some of the projections of where China's population may go, um, there's some view that it potentially may have peaked. Uh, and if you look at there's a, a chart that was uh, you know, published by the World Economic uh, World Economic Forum that came out of the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences that kind of shows um, one projection uh, that you could see China's population actually getting back to kind of the 1960s levels uh, as you go out over time. Um, so that's kind of far out there, but you go out, you know, 10 years, it shrinks, you go out 20 years, it shrinks. And if, if the population is shrinking, that will have a profound impact on their economy, right? So not saying it will happen, but there are some views uh, given kind of some of the policies that were put in place in China that you'll have a shrinking aging population. Uh, and, and that's something that we've actually covered on the show is some of these demographic trends and how they're uh, going to be complicated for us all, right? And the outlook for defense spending is people are living longer uh, and you have climate impacts that you're going to have to mitigate, um, you know, how much available money is really going to be left over uh, on uh, the defense side of the equation. Sash, do you want to weigh in on this really quickly before we uh, move on uh, with all of the other things we got to talk about? Yeah, nothing for me. Okay, uh, Richard, uh, let's uh, go to uh, the Cascade uh, climate modeling tool uh, that Boeing uh, unveiled. There's obviously, I mean, e even with the best of intentions, uh, there's a little bit of uh, marketing uh, that goes uh, along with this. Obviously, you know, Airbus has been getting a little bit of the attention as the uh, sustainable AV, green aviation company, uh, and now Boeing moving into that. You had a demonstration of the tool. Um, what, what did you make of it? What's the importance of it, right? I mean, it's designed to give uh, policymakers public as well as uh, potential customers um, uh, sort of be able to weigh the environmental impacts. You know, what's the hydrogen environmental impact? What's the uh, current fuel impact, you know, as everybody tries to get to net zero? What, what were your takeaways after having seen it? Yeah, I think it's kind of a good faith effort to quantify uh, the road to decarbonization. You know, the objective, of course, is net zero by 2050. Yeah, but, uh, you know, on that road to net zero by 2050, we've had a lot of headlines, a lot of anecdotes, you know, a lot of claims and, and a scattershot approach from a technology standpoint. This is sort of a good faith effort to quantify it all and say, hey, how is this particular action or series of actions going to uh, move us down that road? And, um, you know, it, that's wonderful. You know, it, it really allows, I'm sure there are going to be many iterations and, and, and complications, but the idea of quantifying this process seems pretty essential to me. Ron and Sash, if you guys have anything to say, uh, say it. If not, Sash, talk to us a little bit about Ultrafan. Uh, speaking of uh, more sustainable, greener, and more efficient uh, power, it's a little bit of a crowded field uh, with a lot of companies that are, uh, you know, certainly expanding, you know, whether it's the Leap engine, whether it's the geared turbofan, whether it's a rise on the part of uh, GE. Um, you know, kind of walk us through what Ultrafan means uh, and what it means, particularly for Rolls-Royce and what differentiates it compared with what everybody else is doing. I think it's two things. First of all, why is it important? It's Rolls-Royce's first big geared 
fan demonstrator. Um, Leap that you mentioned is a very, very classic configuration engine. Um, uh, whereas Pratt & Whitney clearly started the whole process with the gear turbofan. Rise is uh, CFM's attempt to uh, sort of catch up with this. Um, and uh, Ultrafan is, is Rolls-Royce's. Very, very hard to get the next 10%, next 15% of fuel efficiency uh, without a gearbox. And also it's very, very hard to optimize um, an engine for the lowest possible emissions uh, without, a, without a gearbox. It's probably impossible to do it just by, just by playing with uh, the different stages and, and, and the combustor and so forth. Um, why is it important? First of all, it's really big. You know, this is a wide body engine. Um, none of the other demonstrators with a gearbox have done that before. At one stage when Rolls-Royce was uh, testing just the, um, uh, the gearbox itself, they were talking about um, uh, the gearbox requiring uh, flows equivalent to sort of swimming pools of, of oil just to just to keep the gearbox cool. We know how long and how expensive this whole process was for, uh, for Pratt & Whitney. Rolls-Royce is uh, you know, clearly following on with that. And we look forward to seeing what Rise does. I, my guess would be Rise is several years, um, several years beyond this. It's also really important for Rolls-Royce um, because one of the criticism or one of the weaknesses of Rolls-Royce has been that it has been financially stressed in the last couple of years. It's had the issues of COVID, but more importantly, it's had the near catastrophic problems with the Trent 1000 engine, which have cost it three, four billion uh, sterling to, um, uh, to correct. And it's been very, very inward looking. What Ultrafan does is says, actually you know, Rolls-Royce is, is back developing, designing, and hopefully at some stage marketing uh, new engines. And Rolls-Royce has always been pretty good at scaling its designs uh, one way or another, depending on where the you know where market design is, sorry, market uh, demand is. So I think the fact that Rolls is back to uh, back to testing engines again, and this is a big contrast for me. Even eighteen months ago, when uh, the company was saying quite openly, once they'd finished testing the components, if there wasn't a requirement that came up for Ultrafan, then they'd just sort of shelve the program for a bit. Looks to me as if they are, um, uh, you know, as if, as, as if now they're they're very much on the front foot again. So it's, it's very encouraging. My guess would be, paradoxically, that the initial or the earliest requirement for a brand new engine won't be at wide body scale, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 pounds of thrust, but could well be Airbus's A220-500 um, if Airbus chooses and can afford to uh, dual source that. We think they should do because the aircraft uh, would do much better with two uh, competing engines than it would do purely with the, the, uh, the gear turbo fan at the moment. The question will be really, is, is Airbus up to it? And then is rolled. Ron, you uh, wanted to weigh in. Yeah, I think a, a, a critical thing um, for all all the engine manufacturers, and um, you know, hopefully, uh, Rolls has been able to address this, or will be able to address it with their Ultrafan, is what we've found out uh, with the current entrants is to get to that better fuel burn, the engines are more fragile than they were before, uh, due to the higher temperatures and pressures and so on and so forth, and. Uh, both the Leap uh, and the GTF, the GTF more so notably, you know, have been you know, pretty well documented as not having as much time on wing um, as was expected. Uh, and if you have some, I think, honest conversations with companies, I think they'll tell you that they didn't appreciate um, uh, from an engineering perspective uh, the, the impact that these, these higher temperatures are really going to have in the operating environment. And you, you've got engines that are um, very effective in terms of fuel burn, 
but they're much more fragile than their predecessors. They're more complicated, um, have much more complicated physics in terms of metallurgy, coatings, and so on and so forth. But um, so I think that's one of the things that's going to have to get solved. And you know, if 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 Rolls has solved that with their ultrafan, um, that would be a selling point for sure. That not only do we have a more efficient engine, but we actually have a very robust one that's not as fragile as its competitors. Richard, your your sense on all this? Yeah, you know, I, it, I first of all, I completely agree with Sash that it just shows that Rolls is focused on the future again, and that's fantastic, and that wide bodies don't appear to have an application. I would think that actually getting back to where they were with the RB211-535 thrust class, something in the 38 to 42 range would be really good given the increasing focus of the middle market fleet planner types on, uh, you know, fleet planner types looking at the middle market. And that's likely to, to me to be the next big product launch. A reminder for our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ uh, Gertler. Uh, Richard, I want to take you uh, really quickly to VistaJet. Uh, some problems there on the company. Financial Times reporting uh, something like a $450 million uh, loss, uh, more than $4 billion in debt. I mean, obviously, the company's strategy was to grow uh, through you know, debt-financed uh, transactions. Uh, the CEO, uh, you know, Thomas is telling and reassuring everybody uh, everything is uh, fine. Uh, I think we've seen other CEOs in a similar position tell us similar things that have maybe not ended well. Uh, ultimately, um, what what does this mean, and what does it mean for that ecosystem of you know sort of private jet operators uh, that have tried to expand and expand dramatically, and that that strategy may have made sense a couple of years ago and maybe makes less sense now, for example. Yeah, I think. There are a number of concerns. The, um, the thing that fueled the big run-up in the BizEv market from a utilization standpoint was part 91K and 135 shared usage rather than individual ownership. And of course, uh, you've got trouble now with Vista. Um, yeah, it doesn't look like they've got a lot of cash on hand relative to debt and other uh, financial obligations. And on top of that, you've got issues over at Wheels Up, uh, which is another shared use operator. So the question becomes, to what extent was some of the big run-up in BizEv utilization over the past couple of years fueled by, well, easy money? Uh, that's a concern. Another concern, of course, is the Global 7500. Uh, I think uh, they were up to 18 of those. Thankfully, there's a lot more to the market for that jet, but it just goes to show that when it comes to shared usage, you've got to be careful with $75 million assets. It's one thing to be net jets and you know have quarter shares or eighth shares in jets that cost say 12 million, but it's another thing to share something in the $75 million class. That's really uh, a much bigger area of, uh, well, charismatic megafauna, if you will. And uh, anyway, there are a number of concerns here. And of course, on top of that, you've got Bombardier that muscled its way to the top end of the high, uh, the, the large cabin business jet market against the Gulfstream 650 and now 700, 800 with this jet. Um, it wouldn't be good to have a bunch of them thrown on the market. It doesn't look like a big risk right now, but in the event of a continued downturn in BizApp, if things keep falling and get below where they were in 2019, can't rule it out, uh, that might create issues. But, but right now, it, it seems to be relatively contained to uh, an unpleasant anecdote about uh, the risks over at VistaJet. Charismatic 
megafauna. That is the word uh, of this podcast, and and arguably, I think uh, the phrase of the month. Uh, Ron and and Sasha, anything you guys want to add to this before we go to the defense portion of our conversation? Well, this this upcoming week um, is uh, eBay's the big European ah, that's right. show, right? So, um, I would imagine uh, there'll be talk about this there, right? I mean, so um, we will. I would imagine uh, by this time next week, I have a better idea. Uh, maybe some of the details of what's going on, so on and so forth. Ron, ju- just real quick, any sort of expectations on what the big storylines are going to be from eBase just before we go to uh, NGAD and F-16 and munitions and the value of artillery, because I want to make sure I give Sash, Sash something he will be excited to talk about. Yeah, um, I, I think so. I mean, it's an interesting time, interesting in terms of it, it seems like a bit of an inflection in business aviation, right? Um We've been seeing uh, the there's been various surveys on market sentiment among owners and you know willingness to buy and so on and so forth and that's been that's been slowing right I mean demand for business jets has been slowing uh, you know that being said uh, you're you're coming off of a market that was quite literally white hot uh, and I think the real question is how much is it cooling are we just kind of settling back into a normal cadence. Uh, and what's going on. And I think it, the, the the timing of eBase this year is actually pretty good from the, from, from that perspective. Uh, and then the second thing I would expect to see there is uh, like there was last year, in fact, um, a, a relatively large focus on uh, electric aviation, you know, you know, both in terms of um, electric, you know, aircraft, uh, meaning not just EV tolls, but you know, electric fixed wing right. uh, machines and so on and so forth. So it should be it should be an interesting show. It's interesting timing, uh, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to you know ferret out of our conversations at the show kind of what's really going on in the market and how much is it really cooling. And uh, you can give us a, a nice update on that uh, next week. Um, start us off, uh, Ron. Right, the United States Air Force uh, is saying that it is going to decide uh, the platformer uh, for the next uh, generation air dominance uh, aircraft. You know, there's nothing else really that's known about this program. It's highly classified. D- d- I mean, ultimately, what does this announcement mean as far as you're concerned? Right. I mean, it looks like the United States Air Force is still the system prime contractor uh, in this. Uh, and is the one, you know, again, ultimately calling the shots, right? I mean, it is a, a kind of a back, uh, you know, going back to the past and how to manage a big complicated program like this. Uh, walk us through what, if anything, this means and what the speculation and the thinking is uh, on your your part of the markets. And uh, Richard would welcome your take on this as well. I think probably the biggest lesson was uh, there was a thought that there had already been some level of down selecting done. Um that's clearly not been the case, right? So, um, you know, you, they're going to down select uh, from the reports we saw. It you know, could be Northrop, could be Lockheed, could be Boeing. We'll see. Uh, and, you know, we, we can talk about, you know, you, you know, what contractors probably have a higher probability of doing it. Uh, uh, and so that, that, and then two, if you really want this thing in the service in the early 2030s and you're just awarding this now in the mid 2020s, good luck with that. That's, I mean, that's all I can say. I mean, it's going to take time to pull this whole thing together. Um, so so we'll see. But I think probably the biggest takeaway for me was because uh, there was active discussion that, oh, there was already, someone's already been down selected or multiple folks have been. They really haven't, right? So right. Uh, I think that that that's probably the most salient point from a market perspective. Um, R- Richard, anything uh, you want to add as somebody who's been watching this program pretty closely as well? 
Yeah, it's um, a lot of confusion. Uh, as Ron says, you know, of course, if they're just down selecting now, and obviously that could include major subcontractors, it could be a two-third, one-third situation, just like it was on the F-22, because, of course, Boeing had a, a one-third share of uh, the program. Um, you know, then, yeah, early 2030s doesn't appear likely. On the other hand, you had that strange announcement, I believe, year and a half, two years ago, that it had entered EMD. Well, if they're down selecting now, no, it didn't, not by the conventional definition of EMD. It was still damn thou in one form or another. And I know there were some requalifications for walking back of that phrase, but nevertheless, you know, is it a new approach to systems maturation? Is there something going on here that would allow it to accelerate faster than, you know, the a normal time frame for developing a jet that had just been down selected. So very big questions. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, money can solve a lot of problems. The last big issues we've had with, um, you know, technology maturation at this pace was in the early 90s when the defense budget, of course, was in a completely different place. So uh, it might be that things are better with uh, an R&D budget that, of course, is uh, 145 billion in FY24. That's much bigger. Um, uh, Sash, uh, let me go to you. We're talking about combat aircraft, and uh, it, it looks like uh, a, a lot of the F-16 operators, many of them transitioning to the F-35. So there are a lot of F-16s that are on the market uh, that could go to Ukraine that can make better use of those uh, airplanes. Britain uh, prides itself on being actually one of the world's leading military trainers. I think people uh, don't fully appreciate the role that the UK plays in that and certainly looking to do that in, in terms of F-16 uh, training. W what do we know about the speed, you know, all, all of the mechanics that are going to go along with this, right? Because the jets are one part of the equation. And, and what do you guys think this means on the residual secondary F-16 market, uh, right? But more importantly, Sash, sort of, you know, the UK has been doing an instrumental role in preparing the, the Ukrainian military, training people. 15,000 have been through military training uh, schools. You were in that business once upon a time when you were wearing the uniform as well. Walk us through in terms of how this entire program is going and actually the integral role it's going to play in the Ukrainian offensive and indeed Ukrainian security going forward uh, for, for decades, actually. I mean, for, first point, you know, the, the paradox is the UK doesn't operate F-16s, never has done, but uh, we are probably doing a lot more in terms of the um, uh, advanced uh, jet training, which is relatively generic. But that's to train, in general, either new pilots or pilots who are very, very inexperienced and who are um, uh, having to convert to, to Western types. The thing that I think was most interesting about the, um, uh, the announcement of the, the US now uh, releasing the end user um, license uh, issues for, for F-16s is how long it might take to train um, Ukrainian pilots to uh, fly F-16s. Um, and then Ukraine has got more pilots than aircraft still, thankfully. Um, they have, you know, their aircraft have gradually been attrited. And although there have been a, lot, uh, a number of uh, former Russian aircraft that have been supplied to them by uh, European allies, they are, you know, they're, they're, their pilots are definitely uh, underemployed. And their pilots are, in the main, very, very experienced. Um, some of them are extremely experienced. Um, I had, uh, I've had a number of very interesting conversations with, uh, European combat aircraft uh, producers, and in private, because they uh, have been told not to, they say you can train Ukrainian experienced pilots how to fly a Western aircraft way quicker than even four months. Um, it's a, 
it's it's probably a week to, to teach a, a very very experienced pilots to fly the aircraft, and then a month in total to fight it. Are they going to be trained to the same level as a U.S. Air Force pilot who can do everything without aircraft? Probably not, but they don't need to. They've just got to go out and try to provide air, air uh, if not air superiority, certainly air cover over Kiev initially, and then over time start to establish uh, air superiority over a, over a wider area of, the, uh, of the, the country. But they've got most of the basic skills as it is. In fact, they've got a lot of very advanced skills uh, as it is. Um, so the training process for S-16s, I think is going to surprise us once the aircraft are released. What does this do? Any nation, particularly in Europe, that is, has ordered F-35s has got F-16s to, to cascade down. Um, uh, Norway, Netherlands, um, Belgium uh, being the, uh, the, you know, the very, very obvious ones. So there are a lot of F-16s around, although some of them are already spoken for. For example, they, they've been cascading themselves to, uh, I think, from the Netherlands to, to Jordan. But I would expect all of the, the F-35 customers uh, who are F-16 operators, and that's a lot, to have aircraft they can make available. The issue is going to be when. Normally, you wouldn't make an F-16 available until you've got the F-35 to replace it. I think some European nations in particular will go on risk on this and will make the F-16s available earlier than they get their F-35s. Um, and the bet, and it's a bet that's worth taking in this, in this circumstance, is that A, somebody else can help do their air defence in the meantime, and B, that the Russians won't do anything unbelievably stupid. Uh, and that winning in Ukraine is more important than having a, a full combat aircraft lineup for, uh, for, for the next two to three years. Ron, um, we've got uh, time for uh, about one more uh, question. Pentagon ordered $1.2 billion uh, in new long range uh, uh, strike uh, munitions, which are very uh, welcome joint uh, air to surface standoff missile, the JASM, as well as the El Rasm, the long range anti ship missile, to integral uh, weapons in the Asia Pacific, maybe not arriving until 2027 in this lot, but it's $1.2 billion in order. Uh, orders we've been talking about, sort of a countdown to this. Kind of give us your your sense on you know i mean is there any other insight aside from just saying hey it's good news they're ordering the kind of weapons they need to deter conflict in the asia pacific yeah i mean i, I think you said it pretty well i mean they're, they're ordering the weapons they need and they're ordering them in large numbers uh, and and i think maybe the, the bigger takeaway here and and this was probably and correct me if i'm wrong uh, probably catalyzed by what's going on in uh, the Ukraine, that not only do we have to buy these things, but we have to buy these things in the proper level of numbers. So we have enough inventory that indeed, if we do need them, we don't run out of them in a day or two. Uh, so it's good to see that they're they're ordering what they need and they're ordering them in the numbers, probably, which they think they'll need if they actually have to use them. Um, uh, Sash, uh, I want to go back to you. Richard, do you have anything on a residual F-16 global market? Because I think Sash hit it, but is there anything you'd like to add on that point? Yeah, Sash did a, a really good job, but I would just add, remember, a lot of people had been keeping their F-16 fleets in service longer than expected, uh, and the market was already getting kind of tight. You know, some had gone to, to Chile and uh, Romania, I believe, and some other places, but one problem was they were just getting very long in the tooth. So, uh, you know, it sounds great, you know, yeah, Norway, Denmark, all these other places, but they got their F-16s in the early to mid 80s. These are 40 year old airframes. 
So we're pushing the frontiers here in terms of, uh, you know, combat aircraft sustainment and upgrades. And I, I'd love to see Ukraine become an air power nation with a, a large fleet of F-16s. But there's going to be a big gap between the stuff they get that's going to last uh, maybe five years and when they can get new aircraft that, uh, that ultimately allow them to, to cement their, their air sovereignty. Uh, so in, in a sense, this will be like the vaunted uh, right, Polish MiG-29s. It's good to have them, but they may be a little long in the tooth and may require some more maintenance to get them to where it is they need to be. Yeah, that's exactly right. Some of them, you know, had been pretty well taken care of with uh, multiple, uh, multiple uh, midlife updates. But nevertheless, you know, eventually it's, uh, even though they weren't exactly flown more than, I don't know, 150 hours a year or something like that, um, Nevertheless, you know, sheer age and fatigue are going to weigh against readiness rates. Crazy Richards F-16 lot. We'll throw in a tank of gas. It sounds like Mickey but, Blackwell. Sash, go ahead. Yeah, but, but here's the thing. They don't need to last very long. They probably won't last very long. Casualty rates are horribly high. Attrition right. is the name of the game in the store. Frankly, if some of these F-16s last six months, that would be a surprise. And that would be a really good result. And I hope that the pilots who will by then who will then have you know, really good ejector seats uh, are you know are able to eject and then then fly more? The, we're supplying these as attritable items, not as an investment. So it's a very very different equation to uh, you, you know our nations buying aircraft and use running them for a generation. Uh, spoken like somebody who's learned the lessons of the Battle of Britain, right? It didn't matter whether you were losing two aircraft. The most important thing was that you got the pilot out of them both times and put them into a third Spitfire. I was going to say, we could produce Spitfires quicker than we could produce pilots then. Not convinced that's the case now. Go ahead, you Richard. Know, just, last if point. I just, yeah, just quickly respond to that. You know, uh, that ultimate is a very good point. But at the end of the day, if you're regarding them as a tritable, then it means... The argument for upgrading them with modern capabilities and avionics and weapons is somewhat weakened. So, you know, it, it might not be that simple. Uh, having said that, yes, good point. Sash, uh, very briefly, in 30 or so seconds, we've been talking about the vulnerability of towed artillery. And there is some reporting that suggests that towed artillery is vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, these are, th- th- this, is, this is an article that's been sort of widely commented on um, this week. It's in, uh, in Forbes. Um, suggesting, alleging that Ukrainian casualty rates or attrition rates for the M777, which is the principal towed artillery system that they've received uh, from the West, have been incredibly high. They've lost as many as 30% of their uh, entire stock. Shouldn't be a surprise, M777, although it's a lightweight howitzer, it's a lightweight 155 millimeter howitzer. It weighs four and a half tons. It's really hard, even with a full crew. And a full crew is probably a dozen men uh, to get this thing in and out of action fast. Uh, the, I think the almost as interesting though, I mean, I, I, you know, I would suggest that we're starting to see the end of towed 155 millimeter uh, for Western armies, because it's very, very hard, whatever you do, however smart you are to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to have good survivability. But what was also interesting, um, although I think the figures are a bit weaker, is that older tracked uh, artillery systems um, from the West, again, M109s, the uh, Polish Crab, uh, British AS-90s, also had pretty high casualty rates. And by contrast, the um, uh, truck-mounted uh, 155s, particularly the French César, uh, have done have done very, you know, have survived remarkably well. So what it comes down to is the quicker you're in and out of action, the better. And once you're out of action, you've got to be able to drive really fast. And a truck-mounted howitzer can drive at least twice as fast on a halfway decent track as a um, right. uh, as a tracked vehicle. 
Um, so, you know, we're learning some very, very painful lessons again. I'd be surprised if we see uh, Toad 155 uh, make a comeback after this war. Um, I will point out my uh, father-in-law was a Toad 105 uh, guy in the Korean War and would tell you, shoot and scoot's the only way that you manage to survive in that game. Uh, so it was it's, it's sort of a time immemorial uh, point. Uh, just really quickly, um, Sash uh, does, uh, you know, uh, there was this great sense that somehow uh, Erdogan was going to lose in Turkey and uh, the country was going to change. And it turns out actually looks like Erdogan is actually going to stay in power dynamically from a uh, defense and aerospace perspective. Does that really change anything? Um, I think it means that the major Turkish... Um, national programs, in particular their four and a half generation, possibly fifth generation uh, fighter, and indeed some of their very, very big warship and, and missile programs um, stay on rails. I mean, Turkey is going to become more and more independent in terms of its uh, military uh, equipment, and then we'll end up exporting a lot more. Um, we've probably had the, the era of the TB, uh, TB2 Bayraktar uh, UAV now, um, that had a very good start to the war in Ukraine and then um, really hadn't heard very much from it recently. Reason being, I think, that they proved as vulnerable as all other UAVs have proved. Um, but, you know, I think to, if, if Erdogan does um, make it through the, the runoff, and I think it, that's what looks likely at the moment, that, you know, the broader issue for NATO is going to be that Turkey is a very, very semi-detached member of NATO and sometimes not even that committed. Um, and... Uh, you know, Europe and the US have got to decide how to deal with uh, how to deal with Turkey, really whose side Turkey is on. Um, Turkey will do what it sees fit. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Hope you guys have a great week uh, and look forward to having you guys back on again next week. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks as always, Vago. Yeah, great to be on, Vago. Thank you. And thanks very much to all of you for joining us. A special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this podcast possible and look forward to uh, having you back on again uh, tomorrow for the look ahead at the week. Thanks again. Have a great day.